Hi there, and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast. Uh, we call it a no bullshit discussion about reimagining religion and remixing spiritual practices in a way that is secular and inclusive to all. We are looking at ancient practices from the past and showing how everyone can do them. And I'm your host, Sanderson Jones. And I'm James Croft. Uh, that was a super cool conversation we just had, wasn't it, mate? It was absolutely amazing. Very moving, very useful, very thoughtful. I got a lot out of it. So the guest today is Suzanne Alderson. I know her because we are on this Facebook Community Accelerator program. She was chosen because she is one of the top 100 uh, leaders of high-impact communities. Read between the lines. So is this guy. Uh, and uh, she, like, she's a really inspirational woman and she's the founder of Parenting for Mental Health Community and that helps over 20,000 parents whose children suffer from uh, mental health illnesses and so whilst her work is dedicating to helping parents uh, with children who are experiencing mental ill health her story and book I mean some of the stories in it are just we talk about a just so moving i mean it will resonate with anyone who's uh been a parent uh been a child wants to be a parent wants good mental health or even wants a society with mentally healthy children and and obviously as james and i are working to reinvent the congregation in a way that everyone can take part like understanding how to create communities that care for kids minds is clearly vital absolutely we love our children at the ethical society and I learned so much from Suzanne about how to create a community that is welcoming to them. And these are three things that I think you might take away from this discussion. Firstly, it can be so difficult for parents to accept that their child is struggling with a mental health illness. And we have to accept what's happening in order to help change it and make things better. So accepting, recognizing what's going on. Secondly, that we shouldn't view mental health struggles as bad behavior on the part of our children. These are real illnesses that we need to take seriously. It's not just kids acting out. And finally, Suzanne talked a lot about the need to move, as she puts it, from parenting to partnership, which is kind of like stepping away from some of the traditional, more controlling parental roles so that she could really listen to her daughter and be what she needed. And we explore what that means in the podcast and yeah before we get into it yeah there's i mean even that thing you said there there's so much about that which is also applicable to so many other relationships so uh before you listen to the podcast there is also the lifefulness 101 course which is launching in january and it is this course which we put together to help people go and create really meaningful goals uh, it's done all online it's done through small groups uh, and at the moment there are still early bird tickets left. It's 12-week collective learning experience. So it's all done through conversation and with other people. We're really proud of it. And so go to uh, Lifefulness, Google Lifefulness 101. It's also in the show notes. Early bird tickets are, uh, there's some very early bird ones, which are 50% off. They're going to be gone soon. I think now we can go on to uh, hear the awesome Suzanne Alderson. I, okay, I'm just going to caption, just going to do this one on Zoom this time. We're going to learn how to record the screen on another occasion. Suzanne, uh, <laughs> there we go. What a start. Uh, 
Uh, hey there, Suzanne. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you know me, Sanderson, and then this is my beautiful co-host. I'm James. Good to meet you. It's a pleasure. Great to meet you too, James. And uh, what people who are listening won't know is that we have just put Suzanne uh, through like the absolute ringer when it comes to tech. Had to give her a sort of quick tutorial on GarageBand. She can now remix tracks. It's a pretty great new career change. Suzanne, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, the, we're just going to get right in there and ask you our first question, which we ask all our guests, is what was the sort of spiritual, religious or sort of philosophical background to you growing up? Okay, I don't think I really had a religious kind of background. Uh, my mother's family were Catholic and very early on in my life, they made it clear to me that uh, because of things that had happened, my grandmother, who's now 95, had uh, her husband had left when she was very young. She got two small children and basically had been ostracised from the Catholic Church. Um, so between that and then my mother thinking that her experiences um, with divorce, kind of there wasn't actually a God there. So I think I grew up not actually believing that um, God was a particularly good thing to align with but I think as I hit my teens my best friend was uh, very active in the Methodist church and I quite envied it it wasn't necessarily the um the service it was the coming together it was the singing I loved the singing and whenever we'd gone out and got really drunk on the Saturday night she dragged me at like 10 a.m to the service and I'd have to sit there and think well actually at least I'm singing and there'll be biscuits at the end but I think for me personally in terms of my family there wasn't really a strong kind of religious um, bent to it but then probably in my teens um, and some of the experiences that I'd had um, emotional abuse rape um, I kind of felt that actually who I needed to rely upon was myself. So I think I looked within um, a lot, which probably sounds, I don't mean to sound arrogant, but it actually was, I had to rely upon myself. Um, and I think probably those early teachings from my family about, you know, not being able to rely necessarily on God uh, led me to think that actually maybe I was to look within and see uh, if I could find what I needed. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. And there's, lots of things in there that we will definitely speak uh, about later and uh, but then like we have six questions the lifefulness questions which are questions which are both at the same time very big but we ask you to turn it into a bit of a speed round because there's six parts of lifefulness and these are the six parts of a congregation that we the functions that uh, you know anyone can have in their life and that's ultimate meaning like commemoration and celebration which is our idea of worship uh, community, personal growth, uh, serving others, and changing the world. So we're going to kick you off. You remember like, them all. Yay. Uh, mate, it is. That's what they pay me the medium bucks for. Uh, and so, yeah, what's your sort of ultimate, it's not religious, but like your, yeah, the ultimate meaning, the driving force in your life? I think uh, connection with other people um, has been the driving force in my life. I think uh, I get most of the meaning in my life from my connections. I'm going to keep that short because I'm, should, should it be one line, Sanderson? Or? You know what? You've nailed it. Tim Minchin stretched it out over that a bloody good. hour. I mean, was it, it okay. was good. No, no, it's not that yours is bad either. <laughs> uh, 
James, come on, mate. <laughs> None taken. Uh, <laughs> I thought I said it was good. I thought it was perfect. It was so succinct. You knew exactly. Oh, what I think you're want. talking about Tim Minchin. Okay, Ori, right, come now. We did your next question, James. Celebration. Okay. What's your form of sort of worship in your life? How do you celebrate life? Oh, I love dancing. I absolutely love dancing. I won the Disco Dancing Championship in about 1983 at Pontins. I know. That's like the pinnacle of my life. But seriously, I think dancing with people with wild abandon is one of the best ways to celebrate life. Was there a prize for that? Did you get like a trophy? Um, Well, no, I didn't get a trophy. I got to the next kind of round. So they pulled you back in with all of the winners from around the country. Yeah, but um, I'm afraid Freeze IOU, I think. Was it Freeze IOU? think it was that yeah didn't quite cut the mustard that time so oh, Never mind. i'm sorry about that well, i this <laughs> point, that story uh this points to the next thing community uh there well, it doesn't actually really but i'm just joining it up anyway uh yeah community life uh and you are a community builder so where uh where do you find your community Oh, my community is amazing. My community is Parenting Mental Health. I started it in 2016 because of my experiences with my daughter and I live there. Um, I absolutely love it. Everybody in there comes because they're in need and they give more than I ever expected in terms of compassion, connection, um, just joy, absolute joy. I love it. Absolutely love it. And I can't wait to talk to you more about that community later on. James, next question. Next one's personal growth. So how do you grow? Oh, I grow by being with around people that are way smarter than me. Um, Sanderson and I met because of an accelerator program we're on and the coach I have there is, and I think he actually he's, he's Sanderson's coach as well. He's way smarter than me and he really pushes me, but I really like being around people who've got really big visions, really big ideas and really big brains, ideally. I love how I you met your coach through Sanderson. You're like, oh, I met Sanderson. And the coach we share is the smart person who I like being around. <laughs> I was, I totally felt that as well. I met someone, I was like, I was like, I'm right here. And then, uh, yeah, it's like when you're bringing up, we're looking for someone really funny to present a TV program. Do you know anyone? Come on. So, well, now this interview is taking a very different tax, Suzanne. <laughs> Going to start bringing up your tax returns. Uh, the uh, yeah, the next one says personal growth, and then uh, serving others. How do you serve others? I hope I serve others through the community and the charity that I run. Um, but really, I think it's a lot of the time it's about being present. So I think you can serve others in small ways that are as meaningful as serving in big ways. Great succinctness. Bloody this is incredibly <laughs> impressive. Best we've ever seen. And finally, <laughs> it's our version of sort of evangelism, changing the world. How do you change the world? What's Again, I think it's going back to parenting mental health. Uh, my mission is to end generational mental illness. So I believe that if we support parents today, that they will be able to support their children better through the next generation. And, you know, those children will parent differently. And I think we can... We, can't, we may not be able to get rid of mental illness because I think it's probably something that's, um, well, there's, there's a lot of upsides, ironically, to it. But I think for me, it's about if we can reduce the, uh, the challenges that parents have, if we, can, if we can help them to parent differently, then we can actually make a difference in the next generation. So that wasn't quite as succinct, but. It was powerful. Hopefully I made up for it with the other ones. That's great. Yeah, the, it's great. And thanks so much for that. And we are, you've mentioned uh, the parenting and mental health uh, charity and community you started. And uh, 
uh, James and I've really enjoyed your book, uh, which is written about your story of going from uh, going from someone whose a daughter was suffering from mental illness and mental ill health, and it was really moving. And I'd just love you to pick up from. I mean, it's that time when you said the day which changed it forever, and you heard it's just this one sentence which stood out and after you'd taken your daughter to the GP where it said the doctor told me that my perfect girl intended to end her own life and that she had a plan to do it and that she was going to act on it imminently and our lives changed in that moment what was that moment like I don't think I'd I well I I was not prepared for that moment at all I think it was um it, it it was it was everything that was important to me it felt like it was placed out of my reach and I didn't have any control I didn't have any um, capability to affect change and I was really scared I mean I was really really scared she had a plan to end her life um, if we hadn't have gone to the doctors for the follow-up appointment that day then she would have acted upon it and my life would have been completely different to now um, but it was a, an incredibly intense time very isolating it was one of those where you think you know what you might do, but actually when you're faced with it, you really, well, I think we all respond in different ways. My husband definitely responded in a different way to me, but we weren't able to lean into our normal kind of support networks. We weren't able to go and speak to our friends and family about it because they didn't have any frame of reference for what we were going through. They cared and they were compassionate and kind, but it was as if we were in a different paradigm. And I know there's that uh, Matthew McConaughey film where he time travels. I can't remember what it's called. It's brilliant. And he kind of pushes the book through the shelf. And it was as if we were standing behind the shelf. We were Matthew McConaughey trying to push through to the rest of um, the world and all the people that loved us. And we couldn't quite explain to them what we were going through. We couldn't give them the depth of emotion. We couldn't convey that to them. And so it was incredibly isolating, very frightening. And uh, yeah, it was, it was probably the most challenging time, I think, of my life. And yeah, speak to the listeners about like the, you know, the lead up to that and then sort of what happened later. Well, uh, my daughter was 14. It was in 2015. She'd been badly bullied. Uh, a couple of um, bullies in her class were making her life really a living hell and she she was really strong she didn't want us to get involved with school she didn't want us to go in and you know stamp our feet and do the parent thing but it came to a point where my husband and I just said we're going to have to do something about this because we were losing her we were just losing sight of all of the brilliant things that made her her and we'd actually gone in to see the school just before the summer holidays we went back to took her back to school after the summer break and she was pretty positive. And she was like, mom, you know, I think I've got this. And then that day we found that the boys were in her class. They were in her sitting next to her. And it was as if that the authority figure, the school had let her down and they were, it was an oversight on their part. They were very apologetic, you know, we're all human but it had such a huge impact on her mental health. And within a few days, she wasn't sleeping at all. She'd stopped eating. We couldn't get her to leave the house, so she couldn't go to school. Um, even getting her to see our GP was a big, big deal. And she ended up being out of school for about two years. 
so it had it had a huge impact on her, absolutely massive impact on her. And and then it was from that that you ended up starting this uh, this community, which is you know we've spoken about it on the Facebook. You know we're on these calls where we go and hear about the impact it's had and the stories you. Uh, you know, the stories you tell about how people's lives have been changed, the people's, the state that people are when they turn up. Uh, how did you make this change from you dealing with it to, you know, sort of suddenly becoming a community leader? I think there was one night where I was sitting in her room on suicide watch. We'd been basically told not to leave her on her own. And you know, so I couldn't go to the toilet on my own. I couldn't, you know, we, we would take turns, we'd do shifts. And it was about 4am and she just dropped off to sleep. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, when you have a newborn and you feel like 3am is like the, the loneliest time of the world. And you think, I can't be the only person sitting here with a newborn. Well, you know, no, of course I'm not. And it struck me in the same way. I couldn't be the only person sitting in their child's room I didn't want, I wanted to be the only person. I didn't want anybody else to be going through this, but I just felt that I couldn't be the only person going through it. And something in me just clicked at that point. And I just thought, if we get through this, because it was a fight and it was, you know, she, she, we nearly lost her on several occasions. If we get through it, I'm going to make sure nobody feels like this. And it was about nine months after that, that I started a Facebook group. And all I wanted at that time was just have a safe space because I knew, um, for me, it had been, been very, very isolating. It had been very difficult to express a lot of the things that we, uh, as parents of young people with mental health issues, feel. All the things you're told you're not meant to feel. And I just wanted to give somebody else somewhere safe to go to. And so I started the Facebook group. And I think it was about two years after that, that Facebook uh, recognised me as one of their 115 most meaningful community leaders in the world, which I was completely flabbergasted about. We'd only got about, I don't know, 500 people in the group at that point. I say only, but that's 500 families, you know, it's 500 lives that are being impacted. And they flew me out to San Francisco to their, you know, their, their offices with all these other community leaders. And I just thought, I am a complete fraud here. But what they gave me was a belief that actually that feeling I'd had in that 4am where I just, that, that thing had galvanised within me to make that change was, was meaningful and powerful. And, and indeed, if I decided that I wanted to change the world, which I did, that I actually could do it. And they would back me and support me and train me and everything else. So that's really kind of how it started. And now... We're about 20,000 parents uh, around the world with a whole range of uh, challenges from um, anxiety to depression to psychosis, eating disorders. Uh, but there's a universal experience for all of those parents, which is you didn't plan for this. Nobody's taught you how to deal with it. You have no concept of what to do for the best. And actually, if you follow the, the general advice, um, those kinds of you know, doubling down parenting strategies where you take stuff away and you tell them not to do things, you just alienate your child and you lose the connection with them at a time when they really need you and they really need that connection to be strong. So yeah, it's, uh, it's really powerful to see all of those families coming, being vulnerable, sharing their experiences, and then ultimately going on to help other people too. It sounds incredibly powerful. And something that sticks out to me about your story is I would have imagined that parents 
who are trying to parent children who have serious mental health challenges would have a lot of support already. Like I, maybe I live in a different world, but I would think that it's not too uncommon for young people to have mental health challenges that we, we all care about young people and their development that I would imagine there would be systems in place already for people to connect to. But from reading your book and from talking to you now, it sounds like you had to find your way through this a lot of the time. How was that? Just feeling like alone and like there wasn't much support? Definitely. I mean, I think the problem with mental health issues is that we've just got not, we've, we've not got the resources to be able to support the people in the kind of ways and for the length of time that they need, really. And so as a parent, actually you're seen as potentially a reason why your child is being seen. You can be part of the problem. And so when you get into that clinical psychological um, uh, process, you can actually be questioned as if you're a chief suspect in why your child is ill. Yes. So that initial where you're, you're in a place where you're in shock, you are isolated, you're desperate, you're fearful, and suddenly you're being kind of prodded in a way and said, you know, what have you been doing? So did you cause this? And actually, that's, I think that's the most damaging thing. It's really understandable. Us parents have massive influence for good, which I've noticed and, and seen over my experience and those of the, in the community. But we do also have you know, influence um, in, a, in a negative way. So it's an understandable question, but it's not particularly helpful. And what I found was that everywhere I looked, our um, CAMS, which is the Child Adolescent Mental Health Service, our CAMS office shared... Um, the space with a, a physiotherapy kind of NHS physiotherapy unit and I would sit in that CAMS waiting list uh, waiting room and I'd be looking for people thinking are you a parent like me you know trying to make eye contact with people trying to find that connection because nobody got it nobody understood how desperate it was you know nobody understood what we were going through and I just needed that connection and I simply couldn't fi- find it And I think if you look at all of the charities out there, there's some amazing charities doing amazing work with young people. And there are some other charities doing, starting to do amazing work with with parents as well. But I just looked and thought, we are the key here. We are absolutely vital to the recovery of our children, not least because we're with them 24 hours a day. You know, we can't, we we are the, uh, the eyes and ears for the clinical staff between appointments but that we have the power to affect change in, in how they feel. We can be their shield when they're not being naughty, their behaviour isn't bad, they've got an illness. And if they've broken their leg or if they'd, you know, um, you know, got something horrific like cancer, we wouldn't be treating them in the same way. We wouldn't be trying to behaviour manage. We'd be looking to see how we could support their, their path to wellness. And so for me, it was really important that I couldn't, I, I was, I was aghast actually, James, I just, couldn't believe that nobody was there for us because we i felt like we played such a vital role in this it's astonishing so yeah it is really isn't it yeah it's one of those times when there's so many different directions want to get into there's so much richness here uh i I, yeah wanted to stop i think it is it's still so hard for people to really understand mental health like until you've seen it even if you have that uh, you know, we've got that sort of technical understanding of me- mental health. We see things being shared. It's okay to not be okay, all of that stuff. I think there's probably also a generational difference 
as well. Like there's certainly, I can think of uh, my dad and people of his generation, you know, he's 70, like they don't understand it. They combine not understanding it and also not being understanding of other people's, uh, you know, a, a child going this way. Yeah, they totally go and look at it as the parent or if not, that the child is being selfish. That's the other thing you sometimes hear about, like, what are they doing to their parents still? So the world that you conjure up in your book is so cut off from other people because you, and again, this is really conveyed, like, it's unnatural. It's, it isn't because it happens, but like, that's got to be, as I was reading it and I had, you know, was spending the day with my son who's 18 months old and he's just like, a little ray of crawling up things and just being delightful and tipping him over his head backwards so he can have a backwards party and he gets all a head rush and he comes up again and he's like, ah! and then you, that's the same person that, that you looked after and you saw her grow and it must have been, sorry, I don't want to make you know how sad it is, but like, but other people could, it's just so confusing. Yeah. It's got to be so hard for people to be there. So hard for other people around you to even like know how to help. So there's, there's no question yeah. there, but I was just like, it's, yeah, I can still, I can just well imagine how difficult it is to this day. Uh, what I'd love to do is just go start off with that, like the, the, the guts of your book, which is the, this thing of like, when we, we've spoken about it before, but with your approach, it really is like, you're wanting to be there for the parents. And so uh, you've got this great idea of sort of parenting, not, no punishment of partnering, not parenting. <laughs> it's going to get it all wrong. Yeah, you've got this great point of uh, spare the rod, spoil the child. Uh, yeah, go, so go and talk about your sort of hymn to corporal punishment to treat severe depression. That's not what it is. No, it's partnering, not parenting. So like you could go and unpack that or if you want to say how you got there, it's up to you. But like okay. it was so fascinating uh, reading about that. But Thank you. Great. I think just going back to your previous point, I think mental illness and poor mental health are distasteful to a lot of us because they go against the fact, particularly in a child, that we have some authority and we have some control. Mm. And actually, we are poor parents. I, a little story about when the book was being edited and one of the editors um, made some notes and said to me, you were taking your child to see a hypnotherapist. You were taking, you know, you were doing all these different sort of little interventions and yet you didn't think she had a mental health issue. And I, I honestly, I didn't. I didn't think she had a mental health issue. I've suffered with my own mental health from um, things that happened in my childhood to postnatal depression. My husband's had chronic depression and I just didn't consider that she could mm. have a mental health issue. But when she said that, I read the notes on it and I, I spent the whole day sobbing because I thought, oh my goodness, what a rubbish parent I was. And actually I wasn't a rubbish parent. I was trying to do my very best with what I knew at the time. And I think the key with all of this is that, you know, mental health is, as we always say, it's, it's, it's the same as physical health. It's a part of who we are, but I'm not sure we're ready yet to really explore those 
dark places. And because we don't have many stories of success, we have a huge number of preconceptions around what psychosis is or, Mm. you know, what anxiety does, what depression is. And I don't think we've got the success stories and I don't necessarily think it's a success. You know, recovery definitely is not a destination. It is a process and good, you know, mental health is around a practice. You have to take care of yourself. You know, it's, it, it, it needs constant, um, uh, attention and it's not something that you can fix so for me it was I mean this has been a massive journey of of learning and self-discovery personally but also as a parent because this isn't something you can fix um, and it's not something that you can control either but I think that goes back and the point I wanted to make was that you know if we see our children as um, an extension of ourselves if we see them as something as a successory as it were, if we see them as something that, um, you know, that reflects on us, then of course we don't want them to be mentally ill. You know, of course we don't want them to be mentally ill because that's horrific and we want them to be happy and all the rest of it. But actually, I think a lot of the the early interventions can come around a changing parenting. And I think that's really important to see that we do have a massive role to play in that. So, yeah. Yes. And I mean, I'm torn between saying I just want to give you a hug and (laughs) just go and, uh, you know, my heart goes out to you because it's got like, I mean, so much more than that. It's got to be so hard. And then please talk about this, you know, like some of these, like this idea of partnering, not parenting, I just thought was there's just so much in there. Okay, well, when my daughter became ill at first, I mean, if I look back, she'd been on a slow decline I've created a a, a curve of, of really of, of mental illness and she was on the slow descent for a long time which is a time where you know you're starting to see these things happening it's really hard in teenagers because you don't know whether it's just them being teenagers uh, with no disrespect to teenagers there uh, or whether it's something more and what I found was that I was starting to partner her even before she was ill. So she'd say to, I, she, I just know that she couldn't go to school that day. So we would have summer cakes, headaches, arm aches. I wouldn't tell my husband about it because we would have to go into a conversation about why. But I was effectively shielding her to try and give her the space to collect her thoughts. Hadn't actually, you know, put two and two together uh, with the bullying. But anyway, I'm not going to self-flagellate there um and then I think when she got really ill what I realized was the kind of authority figures the school the psychiatrists they were all there and I have to say before I go on our psychiatry team was amazing and very very supportive of her and of us but it was all about getting her back into those traditional standard kind of um, ways of being, getting her back into school and a routine because that's what we do, getting her to sleep at these times because that's what we do. And yes, there are definite scientific benefits for all of those things. But what we saw in our experience was that that was having a detrimental impact on her mental health. She couldn't, she'd lost her trust because of what the school had done. And so the thought of all the people that were meant to be caring for her, trying to push her back into a place where she didn't feel safe and secure, was uh, incredibly distressing for her. And so I looked at it and thought, actually, the other thing is, is that because we we see uh, young people as children, not as young or smaller people, even though she's six foot one and she was taller than me at the time, but never mind, we, we see them as 
not having the kind of agency or right necessarily to a view that can influence outcomes. And so for me, it was really important that we, we, we did. The partnering philosophy is step down from a place of authority. You don't know everything. You don't know what is right for your child necessarily. You do, in, you know, you, you have a, an idea, but you're not experiencing what they're going through. So step down from that place of authority where you tell them what to do, you tell them how they feel and stand beside them and understand what they're going through, understand through their eyes what this experience means. And then through that, you can start to build a shared language. You can start to um, build a real deep connection. And I think, you know, I speak really positively about mental illness because the connection I have with my daughter now is just... I mean, that is the one thing that would probably make me cry is I'm just so delighted with that connection that we have now. And we'd never probably have got quite where we are without her becoming ill. I love hearing people talking about stuff, which is so great. That yeah. It's overwhelming. It's great. It's like, I mean, whenever I hear someone talk about something they love, I feel it as well. And I love it. <laughs> Tell us how great um, your daughter is. She's amazing. I mean, she's she's she'll hate me for doing this because she's very private. But um, <laughs> within boundaries, and you talk about oh, how yeah, you, yeah, you, know, you talk about how you feel about her. I just I I am blown away by her. I think be being depressed. I mean, basically, she was out of school for two years, and she taught herself. She followed her. We were very keen for her to follow her curiosity to be curious about things to follow her passions to not worry about trying to do maths or science because that wasn't her thing and so she taught herself to sew she coached a, an online gaming team she t- ended up in the top 500 players in the world in a game what game you know all these um okay. james of all overwatch. the times are you kidding me that's, <laughs> that's a big game tons of people play overwatch that's a real achievement I know. That's it is. It is. She put a lot of effort into What's her favourite character she on did. Overwatch? She put a lot of hours into that. Oh, it's the... Um, oh, I can't remember what it's called. It's like the girl who's... Oh, I who's British. Know. I'll find Mesa, out. I'll probably. text you. That's what yeah. I would think. Yeah. Oh, oh, are you a gamer? I am. James? Yeah, look, you see my place. Oh, my right goodness. Behind me there. Oh, fantastic. James, I think it's okay. pretty dismal that we've had this a really emotional conversation. You've <laughs> finally exciting. chirped in yes. when we mentioned the word Overwatch. I, was, I think that's cool. Good on her. <laughs> no, no, it is amazing. It is. I only like to. <laughs> C- can I ask a serious question a bit? I'm sorry. I, I, I <laughs> do a whole talk about your daughter. But I, I, <laughs> I would love this. If this is about Overwatch, Seriously? I would go. <laughs> Overwatch. Yeah, because I need to improve my skills. Um, but you talk in the book of it and you've been talking a bit now about kind of changing your parenting style over time as you realized where your daughter was and what she needed from you and I think that some people reading about how you talk about it or listening to how you talk about it today would worry that they're kind of giving up the responsibilities that a parent should have that a parent should make decisions for their children and that actually children don't always know best what what what's good for them, particularly including adults, people with mental illnesses. They don't always know what's best for them. I'm speaking from experience. I don't always know what's best for me to manage my mental illness, right? So so I wonder how you would speak to the parents who say, I'm really worried about stepping down from that position of authority because maybe I need to be the authority. Does that make sense? Oh, completely. Yeah, absolutely. And believe me, we've had many, many conversations about that in our house and also in the community. And I think it comes from a place of fear, because if we are, you know, I, I think as parents, we take, we do take that ultimate responsibility. 
and feeling like you're giving that over is in some way almost like putting down that responsibility it's not you know I I made sure that even the days where she didn't want to take her medication she took it I made sure that we kept to a routine of um, you know trying to get her to eat regularly and things like that so it's not a case of going oh dear darling what do you want to do today do you oh you want to stay in bed and not talk to anyone for the next three weeks is that okay oh that's fine don't worry about it it's not about that what it is is it's taking out the heat from that authority it's about not telling your child at a time where you know they have um you you have no idea how your child is feeling and so it's about standing beside them and trying to understand what the impact of these other things in their life is having on them so for example school was having an increasingly poor impact on my daughter's mental health um, and she got to the point obviously where she couldn't go if I was there taking the authority which is unless you go to school you're not going to get exams and if you're not going to get exams you're not going to get to university and if you're not going to go to university then your life's kind of completely over then you know, I would, I would not have been doing her any kind of service if I'd have kept that on, you know, so I think there's, you know, for this, this is not about holding your hands up and saying, I'm a liberal, you know, parent, and you can do whatever you like, and it's fine. This is about saying, I understand that the rules have changed. So the kind of ways that we would interact as um, people with um, positive, secure mental health are different, because um, the you know, the, the kinds of expectations that society has for us, the kinds of things that I wanted for my daughter before she became ill, they're just out of reach. And if you keep on trying to force your child down the path that you were on when, they're, when, they, have a poor, when they have poor mental health, with any kind of mental health issue is that it's one of control. You're out of control. You are desperate for some control in your life. And I think what parents can do is to say, listen, this is serious. We take this seriously. We have no idea what this is like. Even my experience being a teenager with a mental health issue was very different to my daughter's. You know, I can't, who am I to say that I understand what her experience is? So I think for me, it's not about putting down responsibility and saying, oh, do what you like. It's about saying look, this is a whole new thing and we need to kind of co-create our future in this. So I am ultimately responsible. I am your parent, but I am going to listen to what you have to say. I'm going to try and make life as easy as I can for you because you are battling a very, you know, a very, very difficult, dark place, thing, whatever it is in your mind. So I'm going to take away some of the pressure and I'm going to alleviate some of the worry. And I think this comes from the fact that if we look at mental health and the ways that we respond as behaviour and something that we can kind of diminish, then... And we are never going to understand our child's experience. We are not going to be able to form that connection. We're not going to be able to communicate um, sensitively. And yeah, I just, I, I, I feel that it's a missed opportunity if we're just going to look at this as behavioural rather than an opportunity to really understand and connect with each other. Hey there, just want to take a little moment of your time to talk about the new collective learning experience, the new course that we're starting in the new year called Lifefulness 101. It is a 12-week course which you will do in community with other people and it is all about helping you to choose really meaningful life goals. So it always starts with meaning. You'll be like, oh my God, the thing which is most important to me is creativity. And that is why I'm going to create a new colour 
in 2021 and then uh, you'd be like, oh, but maybe I'll just start this and then I will not stick with it. But then we're all about surrounding people with community. So you'll have people every week going, how's that new color going? Then you'll be like, oh, the new color's amazing. And um, But then it's not just about you. It's also the course focuses on how you can serve other people. So then we'll all be going, and then how are you going to help to use this new color to create world peace? And you'll say, oh, it's going to be a a new type of flag with this new concept in colors, and it's going to save the whole world. And yeah, but like that, but with the things which are important to you. And so, yeah, Lifefulness 101, James and I are really proud of it. Uh, Go to lifefulness.io forward slash life on this hyphen 101 you can find out more info there's at the moment there's some very heavily discounted tickets which are the early bird tickets so go and check it out now back to the wonderful suzanne there's a there's a serious point i want to make and there's also a very uh, silly point that i want to make which I, I won't yet and i'm really weighing it up because it's something which is funny <laughs> in my mind which uh this is the may or may not tension in sanderson's life <laughs> the thing he wrestles with more than anything else. This is James. I think you'll like it. Well, we'll see if we can. Uh, we'll see if we can get to it in the end. But like the serious point is that actually that. Uh, in case uh, there's people listening who might be like, oh well, you know, this applies to. Uh, you know, parents with kids with mental health or even, oh, I'm not even a parent, so why do I have to worry about this? But like a lot of those same uh, issues are things we come up with uh, every day when we're with people. And it could be the person that you love. Uh, it could be a friend. It could be a family member that when we see that they've got a problem, like we desperately, we desperately want to help. And we desperately want to go and do something. And even if we know that you're not meant to always go and fix, but like there might be certain things where you're still trying to like uh, be positive, trying to maybe sort of, uh, you know, trying to sort of go and show what the good things they've got. And my wife uh, is a psychologist and she's got this, uh, I don't know where the phrase, I think it comes from this, uh, I think it comes from circle of security, which she always uh, speaks about. And she talks about it as getting in the pit of like when you are, when someone is in front of you and they are hurting, you like the first, get in the pit with them of just saying, and it's really like, it's really hard. She does it with my son and I try to do it. And you're just like, you're just like, oh, you're not getting a snack when you've just had dinner and you're like, oh, and you've just got to go, that's got to be really hard and you've got to be really upset. And, oh, yeah, that would make me really upset. And and then, like, it's... Uh, and it, it feels like I see it in him, at least. And, you know, it, it, it goes and makes him feel better. And it is, like, there's that part of validation. And certainly in those steps you said, when you're sort of getting, standing with someone, that, yeah, that's that's what made... Uh, that's what something triggers something in my mind. And then and then how often, uh, certainly when speaking to my wife about this, and uh, it'll be the thing that you want to get in and which is causing this re- reaction in you that I've got to fix that. I've got to go and make that change. It's actually stuff that you really, you really don't like to see. It's like, oh my God, the last thing I want is a noisy child the last thing i want is a child who doesn't obey me whatever it might be and so you're bringing 
all of your own old patterns. And I would love you to go and sort of just talk about how that shows up in when you're speaking to parents of like how you get them to go and look at how their reactions to things are in fact reflections of, you know, what's going inside, uh, what's going on for them. Mm. Uh, you're so right. I think the, the learned behaviours that we bring to parenting are in some ways really lovely and beautiful and in other ways are incredibly destructive and, um, and deaf children. The way that uh, I, well, the first thing I say to parents is you can't, um, you can't take care of your child if you're not taking care of yourself. You are the blueprint for your child. So how do you talk to yourself? How do you take care of yourself? Do you, do you put your own needs at least on the list? And in many cases, parents are so harried and hurried and they've got so much to do, so much to live up to. They're working, they're parenting, they've got to be, you know, partner, daughter, son, whatever, as well as mum or dad and I think so many times that the person gets lost in the parenting and so for me the first thing is is what are you doing to fill your own tanks up how are you showing your child to take care of themselves and I think the experience that I had with my daughter was that you know actually she learned a lot from the way that I changed when she got ill um she learned she understood then a lot of the ways we did um we did a uh a partnership with Dove earlier this year and she and I did a, a video for our community about it and she said to me you know I am I am definitely not um slim and svelte and she said to me Mom, I've always loved the fact that you've um you've given me a bo- positive body image because you've always loved yourself and you've shown me that you've loved yourself and I was thinking have I really wow I didn't realize that because I I'm not necessarily sure that that's true but um for her what she'd seen me show her and actually I think it's in those moments where you don't think you're showing it's when they're you know it's when when you're you think they're not looking it's when they see you at your your most vulnerable or most potent um so yeah definitely the first thing is look after yourself because you can't pour from an empty cup all those other things that we see on instagram the whole time but actually they're really true so i think that's the first thing and i think then the second one is about acknowledging where you are and actually being really really honest with what you're facing i spent so much time ignoring what was going on pretending I could love it away I say in the book that I was sure it was something that I could you know just have a a slice of Victoria sponge and a cup of tea and it would all go away again and it it couldn't but once we acknowledge something then we're in a powerful place that we can start to change things and even though I couldn't change her illness and I certainly couldn't fix it what I could do was I could accept what was going on accept that the expectations I had for my own life for her life for the future I had no idea what, whether she had a future. There was even one time where I decided that I would work out how we could remodel our house so that, you know, if she was 30 and couldn't live independently, that we could give her some space. And, you know, which is ridiculous. She's living away at university now. So it's, but it's about giving yourself those, um, you know, it's about accepting where you are. And I think when you can accept things, then it just takes the pressure off you. It takes the weight out of things. It takes the emotion out of all of the things you're going through. And it allows you to just be and to be present. And I think being present, like you say, about going into the pit, I think just sitting sometimes and not having to fix it, not judging yourself, not comparing yourself to where you, you know, even the parent you were six months before or the parent you expected to be is is really powerful so for me mental illness has given us both an, an amazing 
gift of understanding and insight and I wouldn't change any of it which sounds a bit weird but I really wouldn't that does that line which you said right at the start and it's when speaking to you now uh it's in the start of your book where and again we see this stuff uh like in uh Facebook Instagram like uh the universe isn't happening to you it's happening for you shoot myself in the face whatever that might be but then that thing of oh god no I'm such a common turn of phrase obviously if anyone's listening to this definitely don't do that uh the unless you're into some really intriguing body modification and want to really gnarly what hole in your nose. What is you, Sanderson? I don't know. I started going the and then bit. I just kept going. In the bit when it's clearly gone into a I don't know. Place. That could be. Okay, all right. Uh, but it was that thing where you said, from my experience of mental illness, I can say that the act of caring for someone with a mental disorder is a truly unique one. Life-changing, life-challenging and life-affirming if you allow it to be. And I ju- like it, it just comes across in what you say and uh, like from judging from you talking and you knowing that there's still, obviously you're looking back at these things and seeing the stuff that is missed, but like you can also see it in how you are right now and how you generally are, that like there's, uh, it's shining through. Uh, James, I realise we're getting to the close to the end of our time, and I'd, I've got a question I want to ask. Is there any question that is uh, I don't want to hog all the rest of the time? I, I, I would on? like to ask one thing: having to acknowledge what was happening, and that it's difficult. I mean, I found it difficult to acknowledge my own mental health struggles. I think that many people. I'm certain that my father lived for many years with the same anxiety disorder that I finally got diagnosed with, and. I think that I listened to him talking about how he worried all the time and was like, yeah, everyone worries about stuff all the time. What are you talking about? You know, and I think it's difficult for people to understand on the outside of a mental illness, what it feels to be like on the inside, maybe even impossible that it's not just doesn't compute for people that having anxiety, for instance, is just different from regular worrying. It feels totally different. It's physiologically different. And I wonder whether, when you're trying to convince people about the importance of your work who haven't experienced mental illness themselves and don't have that frame of reference for it, do people just think this is kids being kids? Like this is just what children are like. So what, it, what, what are people worrying about? Uh, it's interesting, James, because I think, I don't think I've done a talk or met somebody where they or someone they know very in their sort of close family hasn't had a mental health issue so you know it's 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 so uh, prevalent in our society it's just it's everywhere and i think what you're saying is really true it's it's in the past i think we talked with there's a woman who's in my community um who's become a great friend of mine and she said my mum she's in her 50s and she said my mum always used to say that i have problems with my nerves and actually she probably had uh, a diagnosable anxiety disorder as a child but we called it something different and we didn't want to maybe dig into why but I think now we're so much more aware of um, sort of the, the brain neuroscience what we can do with that so as an example we practice gratitude every day we're on day nearly 900 in our community because we know that that refocuses you it gives you a, an opportunity for uh, to pause and to reflect and to embrace uh, the things that are good for you. And it also changes the neural pathways in your brain. But I think it's about, we, we've got a changing language around mental health. 
Um, I think there's a gap between the Instagram stuff that Sanderson so beautifully described earlier. Well, I mean, I really sort of dropped it. I really, I really sort of messed it up by saying, oh, shoot me in the face there. It's like, oh, yeah, that's probably not like suey, suey compatible language. By the way, a friend of mine overheard two girls in Chelsea and uh, one of them said to the other, go, a friend of mine committed suey once. I was like, what? What an abrieve. I don't know what. I have is, no words for that. How much of a hurry are you in? Uh, the uh, so there's an evolving language. Uh, carry on. <laughs> definitely, yeah. there's definitely an evolving language, and I think also there's an evolving sense of um, our own needs that we need to meet our own needs, and as parents, and that has an impact on our children. Um, yeah, I think you, you've got me there, Sanderson. I don't know what to say. Now. So you've, you've done me That's in. my constant well, state say- when I talk to Sanderson. I'm in constant <laughs> speechlessness. Uh, the, uh, and so, yeah, the question that I would really want to get to speak to you, and this, we spoke about it when we were uh, discussing this beforehand, is, you know, James and I are, you know, James is, uh, uh, runs the Ethical Society in St. Louis with an iron fist. Uh, he's the, and that is one of the largest humanist congregations in the US. The Lifefulness Project is all about looking at, uh, you know, looking at the church and spiritual communities and how can we go and reimagine that in a way that everyone can take part. And yeah, I was just thinking like, what would be, if you imagine some, you know, uh, non-religious church of the future slash community, like what would that look like for children like how would they be brought up how would they interact how would we interact with them like what would they know what would they be taught and yeah like because that, that, that's what that, you know I certainly want to uh, help build that okay wow that's a big question I think some of the things that are important are that children have the ability to make mistakes and know that it doesn't define them. I think if we could look at mistakes as learning opportunities rather than as kind of def- defining, life-defining moments, that would, um, I think that would be great. I think if we were more able to look at curiosity as a driver rather than, uh, because I just see that when you're curious about something, you immerse yourself in it, you love it, you soak it all up like a sponge and you know, I just, well, anyway, I'm not going to go down the whole who has used algebra in their life because probably you two have, but I definitely didn't. Um, and I think, well, I didn't you did, either. did you? Honest? I didn't. No, no, no. no. Okay, great. James, James has stayed at uni all his life. He doesn't know what the real world is. I basically, <laughs> yes, I don't know. What is the real world? What are you even talking about? <laughs> but I think that's, uh, and the whole thing about time, I think being present, having time, um, where we are present in our, you know, physically, but also emotionally is really important. Um, so I, I don't know what the answer is to all of this, but I definitely think that if we can work up on ourselves as parents, and that's not just going into therapy, although I do definitely recommend that, it's, um, it's about kind of challenging ourselves, asking ourselves the question, the difficult questions, which is, you know, do I really like this? Is, do I really need this? Is this really good for my family? And just because other people act in a certain way or live their life a certain way, is, is that right for us? And I think being brave and having that sense of, um, yeah, just that, that courage, as the French say, I think it is a really important thing to have. It's to be brave and to 
work out what your family needs for it to function well and then I think it would I think we'd Mm. all be a bit happier I love that sentence. What I love even more is that you use the word courage uh, instead of the English word courage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I am That's great. There's a that. certain, there's a certain uh, <laughs> word they only have in France. It is a, a courage. It is untranslatable. <laughs> Uh, the... like a courage moment I'm sorry I think it really sent it over the top yeah because I, I go and fit my uh, again like uh, in my wife's research she uh, and like uh, so she ran a early childhood intervention for mums and kids and just like the the way that we bring up kids in the UK and in most of the developed world is so unnatural like that thing of, you know, like feeling totally alone of like, you've got to, got to do it all yourself. You've got to go and juggle childcare. All of these things where you would be normally bringing people up like in that thing, it takes a village to raise a child. That That is like so far removed from most people's experience of parenthood. And I know that when I, when Ragnar was small, I'd go like, I do have quite a big family and you'd, I'd just be able to go and see someone and they'd hold Ragnar for 20 minutes, half an hour. And you feel like you've gone and taken a gap year. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's certainly James. What does it like? What do the kids programs look like at the ethical society? They're right now not they don't look like much because our building is closed and we can't we can't honestly ask our kids to kind of get on Zoom and do more more online yeah, stuff yeah, right yeah. now. Yeah. But generally they are actually pretty affirming and open. It's not like a traditional religious education program where we're trying to teach them to believe our point of view. It's much more about learning what the kids think about life and how they're gonna live their life. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of the the early part of it culminates in a kind of ritual where they get together and they each talk about their own values and say how they want to live their life in the future and then they sort of graduate to the youth group it's very nice i would say it's very nice but i think it's great (laughs) (laughs) sorry i was just going to say that reminded me james of um alison gopnik the psychologist who wrote about um gardening and carpentry and it sounds like you're, you know, you're gardening, you plant a seed, you water it, you give it light, you give it all of the best kind of conditions you possibly can. And you might get a marrow or you might get a marigold and you're not quite sure what it is, uh, but you're going to nurture it and see what grows. And I think that's a really beautiful way to look at parenting and, and bringing up young people. I love that. So, yeah. Yeah, it's really good. She's an amazing woman. Alison Gottman. We're going to yeah. use that now in our marketing <laughs> there's literally three copies of that book in my hallway, which are going to be sent to uh, parents uh, of uh, doing a course my wife is organising. I haven't read it, though. Probably good. Uh, the, uh, so, hey, look, thanks so much, Suzanne. Where can people find your book? People can find my book on Amazon, uh, Waterstones, all good booksellers. It's called Never Let Go, How to Parent Your Child Through Mental Illness. And you can find us on Facebook at Parenting Mental Health, on Instagram and at ParentingMentalHealth.com. Uh, is it uh, like if, uh, would it make a good present? Um, I was trying to set that sure. up. I was trying to set that up as in because it's Christmas coming. But actually, if you give it to another parent, it's like a real passive aggressive 
Well, Goodbye. I think everyone I can learn. This. I think everyone can learn something from the book because it's not oh, just. It, firstly, it's a very personal story, and it, it's a moving story, and ultimately a hopeful one, which I think everyone likes. But also, it's an opportunity to. I, I'm not sure that there's anybody, any young person who at some point won't struggle with some of the issues you talk about in your book. Yeah. No, I think it would be a good gift. How, how was that? How convincing was that? Thank you. That was amazing, James. Thank you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to employ you as my publicist. Thank you. Well, uh, we'll, we'll do that. Change of, no, I'm not really. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do that. Uh, sn- okay, send you that little snippet. The, uh, the, I've, the, my favourite uh, book, which I've seen, is a good passive-aggressive book, is uh, The Courage to be Disliked. And you can <laughs> give it something. Saw this, thought of you. <laughs> Uh, Suzanne, thank you so much. You are so wonderful and I uh, like a real inspiration and it is uh, fantastic to know about the work that you're doing, looking after like a community, 20,000 people. I know that in this age and you even hinted it at it that sometimes 500 can seem not that many, but you are changing lives. And if you you know what it felt like to be that alone and that down and you are genuinely helping people who are in that state and even if it was just helping one person it would be an enormous gift but you found a way to turn your difficulties and your pain into something truly beautiful and I just hope that if in the dark times which always come with any community leader because you can't always be the flower when you're the gardener uh, I hope that you're able to go and tap into that and to go and find uh, that little whatever you need in your wonderful mission thank you Sanderson should I say merci merci (laughs) all right bye gang (laughs) thank you James bye Oh man, how fun was that? So it's now Wednesday and I'm recording the outro. We recorded it on Monday. And yeah, Suzanne's amazing. Um, That story is so powerful. And the insight she's got is, I've I've been thinking about a lot of that stuff uh, this week. You know, it's... It's a really different way of looking at parenting. And then it also makes you, you know, go through all these scenarios of like how you want to not only lay the best foundations, but also knowing that, yeah, there's my my little son, little Ragnar, and who knows what's coming his way. But yeah, I got so much from it. And uh, yeah, now it is a Wednesday. It's been a good Wednesday. But if you are new to this podcast, hello. Uh, at the end of the podcast, we always do a bit of an update on where things are at with the Lifefulness Project. And then also talk about what's happening in the community. Because as I'm sure you can imagine from what we talk about, you know, we want this to be more than just a podcast. It's me slamming the other just a podcast podcasts. Oh yeah, can't even can't even be asked to start your own community. Ugh, who are you, Ira Glass? Uh, so yeah, let's. Uh, yeah, today's a good day. Uh, I ran a ritual design workshop with a company, which was really interesting, helping people to go and sort of turn their routines into rituals. And that's what I should have called the workshop. I called it the most meaningful time of the year, Christmas, etc. We sang Mariah Carey. I'm always a bit uncertain of how many people on these things genuinely get into the singing, but I, it, well, I think people really did. And uh, yeah, that's really satisfying to help people do that stuff. Uh, 
obviously. So, um, yeah, that's what I've done. There's um, getting to the end of this Facebook Community Accelerator program, which I've been on. And, um, yeah, I've got a pitch on Monday for that. And it's quite interesting, like a big change for me over the course of this program is that, so last year I was on this thing called the Entrepreneur First Tech Accelerator, where they're always like, ah, go and raise loads of money and go and grow and spread and all of that. But yeah, the thing which this accelerator made me want to do is not do that, to go and make this work just for me because because that's the first thing you've got to make work, or at least that's the realization I've had is that like, you know, maybe I go and get someone in who can go and do all the admin or go and do these things, which I find difficult. But like, is that really solving the issue that I've got around these things? And yeah, like, you know, you go and get a load of funding to go make everything happen. But like, are you playing out the same psychodramas with now with other people there? So yeah, that's the big change. The going on an accelerator, which convinces you to not accelerate. Uh, and uh, yeah, on the community side, if you want to get more involved, uh, there is Lifefulness 101. That is our 12-week collective learning experience. It launches on January the 13th. If you are listening to this tomorrow, you could just about get very early bird tickets, which are 50% off, but the early bird uh, tickets then kick in and those will run until the end of January. And the the whole purpose of this course starts in uh, January. We meet once every two weeks and it is all about helping you find really meaningful goals and then giving you the tools to really support you in that. So if you were to uh, go to lifefulness.io forward slash lifefulness hyphen 101, then you can go and find it. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's it. Thanks to everyone who helps make this podcast. Thanks to James, you cheeky little chappy, uh, who I adore. Thanks so much to Mav Shetty, who is the brilliant producer. Thanks to Will Andrews for the artwork. And thanks to Roman Rapak and Miro Schott for the music that you're listening to right now. <laughs>